I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to History Hack. Matt here today and we have a fascinating subject for you because we are going to be looking at the Inquisition, the Spanish one and the many other ones that came from it. To help us do that, we are joined by Ada Palmer, who is a historian focusing on the history of radical thought, especially in the Renaissance, but amazingly from Plato right through to now and comic books. Ada, thank you for joining us. How are you doing? My pleasure. It's a treat getting to talk about exciting I hesitate to say fun, uh, but exciting parts of history. <laughs> so let's say, where are you and how's lockdown been? I am in Chicago and lockdown has been restful for me in a way. Uh, I'm a, a disabled chronic pain sufferer. And so the ability to go to campus virtually instead of dragging myself there on the days that are bad has been wonderful. And so one of the th- I'm one of many who I think hopes that after this universities will realize that while in-person classes are invaluable, we definitely want those again. A committee meeting can totally happen online and doesn't require people dragging themselves across things if they don't want to. So that the option of choosing what to have in person or what to have online may open up and uh, open up a lot of accessibility options. But it's also been the first year I haven't been to Italy for research in over a decade, and that feels weird. And I. Uh, miss the my Italian host family who run a gelato place that I uh, usually visit every year. We, my my wife and I honeymooned and we went to Bologna and Rome and we found mm. a gelato place in Bologna that all of our walks seem to end up at. It was, it was which one? I know the Bologna. Bologna is a food cap for those who don't know a food capital even for Italy. So that. The Italians travel to Bologna to have extraordinary food. I, I I couldn't tell you the name of it. I could probably walk to it. Which if I yeah, <laughs> there are three, but there are a couple of really outstanding gelato places in Bologna that uh, are, I sometimes make the trip all the way to Bologna from Florence or Rome just <laughs> just to have. And, and for those who are interested, my blog has a international gelato atlas listing great gelato places in cities all over the earth because I'm very serious about my gelato study. My dissertation advisor said you should choose the subject of your dissertation based on the cuisine of the area to which you must travel for your research, which is some of the best advice that I've ever got. Uh, and I have been sharing my gelato researches with the, uh, with the internet as well as sharing my history researches. We we should have done that instead of the Inquisition. <laughs> <laughs> History of gelato. Invented for the Medici. We could do another one on that. We're having you back for that one, definitely. I, I think that's one of the reasons Wendy and I got together, because wherever we went, we found a, a lovely gelato place. Whether it was in Buenos Aires, here, or in Italy, it, it, all, it all... Anyways, we are going to be talking about the Inquisitions. And you know, for, for me and for many people, when you think Spanish Inquisition... Well, you don't expect the Spanish Inquisition. That's where everybody's brains go. In the in in pops Michael Palin and mm-hmm. various weapons that they have at their disposal. Or you're a Mel Brooks fan or a Allan Poe, th- things like. But I guess that the way to start this off is how did it start? When was it formed? When and by whom? Even which is a 
Great question, to which the answer is very plural, because the most important thing when beginning to think about the Inquisition is that using the singular is very misleading. And it's a lot better when you're thinking about it to think of it as the Inquisition's plural. Uh, and there is a first one, but then there are more and more that it iterates into. And I don't know if you want to think of it as like seasons of a TV show that can be very different from each other, but there are very plural inquisitions. And in fact, the singular, the inquisition is propaganda because Rome always wanted to pretend that it was in control of this and that there's only one inquisition, that everything is central, the Pope is in charge of it and everyone is fanatically devoted to the Pope, but they weren't and they were all over the place. And when it takes six months to send a ship to across the sea, for example, to what is now Mexico or to Goa on the west coast of India, which are places that were under Catholic empires and therefore theoretically under Catholic control. If it takes six months or a year to send information there and get it back, you get very, very plural inquisitions. But Rome is always using the singular. Like there's one inquisition, we are in charge of it, no matter how big and complicated and utterly out of our control the activities are over there, it's totally us. Uh, and so the singular inquisition is a propaganda victory. The plural saying there are multiple inquisitions is the reality. And that's an interesting and important way to think about it. So the very first institution is 12th century and in France. Uh, and it's founded because there was this surge of a particular heresy uh, which I always have trouble pronouncing. So I'm going to pull up the pronunciation guide because that is how I roll. Uh, the Cathar and Waldensian heresy is the clearest English pronunciation. These are heresies whose actual theological details are much less significant than the fact that when a heresy starts up, it tends to then draw adherents who have money and wealth and power, and it very rapidly comes to be a political rather than a purely theological dispute, so that anxiety about the dissemination of that heresy is also anxiety about different peripheral territories declaring independence. Is this going to be a revolution? Is this going to be a coup? Is this going to be a splitting of the country in half? So this is happening in France in the 12th century, and uh, authorities in France rather than in Rome want a tool to crack down on this. And it's much more the establishment in France that cares about it than Rome, which cares about it more distantly. Uh, so they want to create a tool for cracking down on and chasing and, and persecuting the people who are disseminating this, really because they care a lot more about the political figures who are being converted to it, but it's the preachers you have to go after to get at the prevention of more politically powerful people converting. So they need an apparatus to do it. Um, and like most authorities, and here is where my censorship research going all the way up to 20th and 21st century and, and looking at how modern China does this and how the USSR does this and how New Zealand does this and how the US does this. When you want to censor something, it's much easier to repurpose existing apparatus than to create a new institution from the ground up that doesn't already have infrastructure, bureaucracy, money, etc., and France in the 12th century is, we can think of it as a country, but it's much more accurate to think of it as a whole lot of little territories which have a lot of independence from each other with different figures in charge. So what you want is something that already has border crossing skill. So they turn to the Dominican monastic order, which is a pan-European monastic order, 
they turn to the Dominicans because the Dominican monks are the ones that are excited by uh, scholarship and study and reason. They're the ones whose big shtick is the way to get to heaven is knowledge and studying the nature of God, the nature of the world, the nature of angels. The, the, the root up there is, is, is being in a room with a million books. Uh, and Thomas Aquinas, who is their favorite saint after their founder, Dominic, is often depicted in art. Uh, as a wonderful chubby man, which he was, uh, with angels accompanying him, whapping opponents over the head with his enormous books. Uh, that's a good way to think of, of, of the Dominicans. Uh, but the Dominicans, because they are a monastic order which crosses borders, by delegating to them the authority to arrest people, interview people, you tap into the infrastructure they already had in place for moving around and preaching, moving around and doing money lending. So imagine if you used a present day international organization, something like Doctors Without Borders or something like UNICEF, something that already has infrastructure in place to lubricate getting visas and help get people across and work with the authorities of local areas. That's why it's the, the Dominicans that get delegated and turned into the first officers of the Inquisition because the infrastructure is there. So this is used to hunt down one particular heresy in one particular place. Uh, and the Inquisition is effectively a set of laws saying these people have the authority to arrest people and they have the authority to run trials of people. Um, and it then dies down again when that heresy no longer matters to people. But the infrastructure then exists and the legal precedent then exists to have an Inquisition. And so then from then on in Europe, whenever there's usually for political motives, some group somewhere that wants a tool to crack down on adversaries where they perceive theology or ideology to be part of it, they can then repurpose that. So the famous Spanish Inquisition is uh, Isabella and Ferdinand and other authorities in Spain after Spain is liberated from or expels uh, Ottoman rule are very anxious about the possibility of Ottoman rule infiltrating them and having a sort of fifth column. Uh, and they're also extremely, extremely uh, um, anti-Semitic and scared about Jews being a fifth column. And they've actually expelled or forced converted the Jews of Spain at this point, but then they're constantly paranoid that there are still going to be Jews undermining stuff. And this is absolutely paranoia, but they want to persecute these perceived fifth column enemies here is the institution of an inquisition lying around. It's like, great, we'll use that. And that becomes the legal precedent and the legal infrastructure. But the reason that the Spanish Inquisition is ferocious, powerful, and infamous is that the political elites benefited from it. And they're the ones who channel the funding in. They're the ones whose fears fire the anxiety. They're the ones who pay for the dungeons and pay for the torture and pay for everything. And so inquisitions always sort of flare in strength and then weaken in strength with how much whoever has money and power in the region wants to persecute someone. And if they don't particularly want to persecute someone, you'll have low ebb periods where the Inquisition has no funding. And you have forlorn letters from inquisitors like, we have all of these letters claiming there are witches and we don't even have enough people to go interview them. And the state being like, yeah, because I don't want to pay for this because this witch hunt thing is stupid. Um, so that it requires the support and collaboration of the state to make an Inquisition powerful or not powerful. And notice here how the Inquisition isn't the state, but it's a tool the state can turn on and off in effect. 
And sometimes Rome will be trying, Rome will care. You know, there's a heresy going on that we're worried about. Please go persecute it. If the local duke or the local king doesn't want to persecute that, there is almost nothing Rome can do about it. Or doesn't doesn't want to pay for it. Exactly. You know, we have the phrase the Spanish Inquisition because that's a moment at which one particular Inquisition had enormous amounts of political support and money and ferocity poured into it. But there are dozens of other inquisitions. There's the Inquisition in the Philippines. There's the Inquisition in what is present-day Mexico. There's the Inquisition in uh, in the Netherlands. There's the Portuguese Inquisitions. All sorts of complicated things. And each of them has their own character and their own unique moment because they all tap into the government for authority and money and usually troops and dungeons which are supplied not by the church which doesn't generally have those things lying around but by the state which then has to care uh, and has to have a reason to want to fund this i'm fascinated by your start point there in in, in the languedoc because that's where we used to go on holiday in the summer times and so mm-hmm. the you know the the, the the qatar rebellion or whatever you want to frame it that being their starting point for the inquisitions that would follow is is fascinating because it it was a brutal suppression of of those people so i guess they they set the bar for how far an inquisition was willing to go from the very start you know when you think of the sack of bezier and 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 the like but remember that sacking is also being done by the, the civilian military in collaboration with the inquisition so the inquisition is still a tool of a political crackdown that also then has a theological element uh, entangled with it. And the theological element helps make that crackdown worse, mm-hmm. but the theological element doesn't by itself enable or cause that crackdown. Uh, that is a fascinating element. It's almost symbiotic, but not quite, isn't it? it you, you need one with the other. They don't quite work without it. But Right. In fact, you, you need both to be engaged in something for the full ferocity of it to to engage because when the state doesn't care but the inquisition really does you 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 still get occasional ones where the inquisition says okay we're going to focus all our energies on galileo because we really really worry about galileo and even though in fact the people in political power kind of like galileo and and don't don't mind this you know this is going to be our focus right now because this is the direction in which the church's fears go um but it's, you know, you look at the number of variations because there will be periods when in a decade there will be 10,000, you know, trials and serious violence. And then in the next day, there'll, decade, there will be 100 in the same place. And you say, what happened? Uh, and when you look at the more fine-grained numbers, what you see is that one particular anxiety will surge. So there's great numbers from a, a, a study on Sicily that I um, was looking at and all of the wonderful historians who work on this whose names I can never remember off the cuff are on my website and I will happily also share them with anyone who emails me for more info um, but there's this amazing set where they've sorted out the inquisition charges by charge what are you being charged with are you being charged with heresy are you being charged with witchcraft are you being charged with sodomy are you being charged with this and and a, the set of them for one particular year had like something like 7,000 charges for Judaizing, meaning this imaginary being a secret person who wants Judaism to infiltrate the world and destroy it thing. And then the next five years had four, uh, but it had a bunch more charges for conspiracy and sodomy and other stuff because the what particular thing is being feared 
varies decade by decade, right? Just as what we're afraid of varies decade, decade by decade. And what we care about censoring varies decade by decade. A great example to think about in our own day is, you know, since the rise of social media, when's the last time you heard somebody talk anxiously about censoring comic books or even censoring television, right? We're worried about the thing we're worried about, which is social media networking. And so far, far, far more conversations about what needs to be censored focus on that than focus on what was the focus of a giant censorship craze as recently as the 50s of comic books, right? So similarly, the most famous Inquisition trial in the world is Galileo's trial. And so we have a very strong sense of the church going after scientists. All 12 of our documented trials where science and experimental science is the primary issue that the Inquisition is going after are within a decade of 1600. It's this one 20-year period when that's what the church is worried about. And Galileo is the most prominent, Giordano Bruno and other, in this very short moment. But, you know, after 20 years of caring about science, the Jansenists show up and they're like, we don't care about scientists anymore. Jansenists are the Twitter of being worried about stuff now that it's 1620. Ah, let's go prosecute the Jansenists instead. So that what the Inquisition is used to target varies over time. Uh, and if it was the Cathars and the Waldensians first, and then it was the hypothetical Judaizers, Judaizers and hypothetical Muslim infiltrators in Spain, and then it becomes anxiety about books, and we can talk about book censorship in a minute, but when the printing press comes in, that creates a new anxiety about this new medium, just as Twitter is a new medium. And so when the printing press comes in in 1450, as it disseminates, then there's a period when the Inquisition's primary focus is, okay, what do we do about books? Uh, then the Protestant Reformation starts up, and so after 1517, the primary focus of the Inquisition is Protestant stuff going on for a long time, then you get towards 1600, and it's science for like 20 years, and then afterward, it's Jansenists, oh my god, uh, and it's Jansenists well up into, uh, into the Enlightenment, and then you go even further, and the Inquisition's focus is Marxism for a little while, and is Darwin for a little while, just every time there's a new crisis, you repurpose this thing to go after that new fear. It's very much a tool to push back against the new isn't it? it, it exactly. It, it's, yeah, it's the stick to beat something you're scared of. Here's where it's useful to remember how different this is from the way we tend to imagine censorship, because our big image of censorship in our imaginations is Orwell. And mm. how does the censorship operate in Orwell? It is a top-down, multi-year, clear plan with a specific, we're going to enter this world that had no censorship and impose censorship upon it. And we're going to gradually transform the language and censor Shakespeare. And we have this long unrolling 10-year, 20-year perfect master plan. When you read the letters of the Inquisition, it's always, ah, we don't have enough stuff and we don't have enough funding and they outnumber us. So what are we going to do? It's always panic. It's always an emergency. It's always developed as an emergency response to whatever has just happened. And sometimes the whatever has just happened is purely propagandistic. Sometimes it's a genuine new idea. Sometimes it's a genuine emergency. So if you can think about how, for example, in the U.S. right after 9-11, the Patriot Act was passed as a response to a perceived crisis and included a lot of things that enabled different restrictions on rights and enabled surveillance that then actually don't get tapped nearly very much until decades later, but are now being problems. But we're put there because of a crisis. 
The Inquisition works like that too. It was created in response to a perceived crisis. And whenever there's a new perceived crisis, you sort of revive it and say, okay, we need this again. We're directed against this thing. Uh, but the Inquisition's perspective is constantly being treading water in a storm and a sort of desperate state of emergency, which is so different from the Orwellian image of the Inquisitor as gazing down from a tower and having all the resources he needs. They, they sound like hard-pressed civil servants. To some extent, though, who gets employed by the Inquisition also varies Inquisition by Inquisition. And that's neat in itself because it also means that the permeability of what manages to slip through anyway will be strongly affected by who's running the Inquisition. Uh, so, for example, the Dominicans run it for a while and then the Jesuits also get involved. The Jesuits being a later developing uh, religious order, Catholic religious order that much like the Dominicans focuses on scholarship and education. And so the two become rivals in a sense. And they both have the authority to run Inquisition and, and sometimes in the same place. And so you'll sometimes have two or three overlapping Inquisitions that get in each other's way and compete <laughs> to censor stuff. And it becomes almost a, a, you know, mom said I can't do it, but I'm going to go see dad situation where if you can get one of them to approve your book, and the other one didn't, then it's a pain for the other one to go after you because the first one said yes, so they said no, and then they fight. So you can kind of game this system. Um, and because Rome needs to delegate this authority, it can't do it from the center because it takes six months to get places or you know weeks or however long. Um, they also rapidly, under pressure, especially from local authorities, start to delegate the ability to do this to local bishops who are usually the brother or cousin of the duke, right, or, or relative of the king, or in on part of the political ruling elite. And, and over time beyond that, uh, states actually convince, the, convince Rome to give them direct authority so that, you know, the king of France can appoint inquisitors uh, as a delegate of Rome. Well, as soon as he does that, he's appointing mostly people who care about protecting the reputation of the king of France a lot more than they care about uh, whatever Rome thinks the theological issue is, which is how you get this fascinatingly bizarre uh, functioning of censorship slash the Inquisition in 18th century France, for example, where we know Voltaire and Diderot and all of this radical thought is prospering. And some of it is banned and circulating underground, uh, but some of it is not. Some of it is circulating just directly. And when the famous Encyclopédie Diderot's, uh, Diderot and D'Alembert's project of can we create a compendium of all knowledge so that when it circulates, people will be able to read it and be empowered. The farmer can read it and know how his plow works and know how to farm better. Uh, the woman can read it and know how her silk stockings are made and understand why they cost what they do. And you know, the, the knowledge is power in the sense of empowerment idea. Mm -hmm. uh, and when that starts up, the authorities in France think it's great because they're all like, yay. And the censors in France are like, sure, and, and allow it to be published. Why? Because most of the censors in France at that period are, this is a easy to get first job at a college for a lit major who is meanwhile working on his own book to then publish and then eventually get a job as a professor or a tutor. But meanwhile, this is the equivalent of a postdoc as you work censoring stuff for the king. And Robert Darton is the wonderful historian who's focused on this. We have letters of these young, fresh out of college inquisitors writing to each other like, Jacques, I got your book to censor. Don't worry, I'll be really gentle on it and do a good job, right? <laughs> that that they're, they're also among some of the more radical thinkers a lot of the 
time. And so the, when things like the encyclopedia start, you basically look at it and say, okay, is there something in this so radical that I'll get in trouble if I don't ban it? Eh, not really. Okay, I can let it slide. Um, and with the encyclopedia, it's really fascinating. And this is where you can see the power of the Inquisition is sometimes enormous and sometimes tiny. Because you know, this starts coming out and after volume H, uh, Rome starts looking, this is what? No, France, this is not okay. This is, this is you know, deist and materialist and full of questioning authority. You, no, you should have banned this. Ban this immediately. And so Rome orders France to ban the encyclopedia as of volume H. Um, and, and, and Paris is like, fine. And we'll do the ritual where you have to burn a symbolic copy of the book. And they get a symbolic copy of the encyclopedia and they march it out next to the fire. And they're like, okay. And then they set it aside and burn some Jansenist theological treatises instead. <laughs> because that's what they're actually anxious about and don't like. And they like the encyclopedia. Uh, and after that point, they kind of have to censor it. But when, you know, the next volume you know, here is an encyclopedia. It's anonymous and it's printed by an anonymous press and it begins with the letter H. I wonder where it came from. France is like, yay, we don't want to bother censoring that at all. And it circulates wildly because the crown and the authorities and the people who get hired by the local censorship body, which is the delegate of that inquisition, don't care about censoring that material. And so it shows you how the human factor always affects what gets censored, what doesn't, who gets prosecuted, who doesn't. Uh, and sometimes if you're a time traveler, you feel like you want to go tell the Inquisition, like, guys, Jansenism doesn't matter. Voltaire is going to trigger the French Revolution. What are you doing? You know, and, and I sometimes imagine, in fact, that Jansenism, which if you're wondering what it is very concisely, Jansenism is, is Calvinism for Catholics. Is your Catholic God insufficiently terrifying, cruel, and, and, and likely to hurl you into hellfire forever? Then Jansenism is for you. All of the grimness of Calvinism combined with all of the authoritative hierarchy of, of Catholicism. Um, I sometimes joke that Jansenism was made up by time travelers who wanted to protect Voltaire and Diderot by distracting the Inquisition with this, hey, look, a very scary heresy over here. Um, and there's another great case. Uh, this is in the Caribbean, uh, the Portuguese-controlled Caribbean in the 17th century, I think it is, or maybe late 16th, uh, where, you know, they're supposed to check what's arriving in ships from Europe. And so they're supposed to check for, for books and so on. And, and all sorts of, you know, Spinoza and Locke and all sorts of things are, are streaming in to the Caribbean, kind of vaguely hidden but they find this napkin with pictures and words on it in English. And they're like, is this Bible stories in English? Because if so, that would be really bad. But we can't tell because not only do we not speak English, but the version of the index of banned books, which I can talk about in a second, which was up to date at the time, specified that if you read any portion of scripture in translation i.e. not in Latin or Greek or Hebrew, any amount at all, you're instantaneously damned without the possibility of repentance or redemption. And so the inquisitors don't dare read the napkin because they would go to hell immediately. And they're like, what do we do? Do we find 
somebody who's going to be executed in those English and ask him what is it and we have months of them working on these this napkin and there were several copies of the napkin and they're so worried about that and meanwhile all sorts of radical thought is streaming through and, the, and they eventually determine that it's the life of the Lord Mayor of London and everything is fine but the amount of energy that gets waylaid into this because of what the people are afraid of they're afraid of northern europe they're afraid of languages they don't know they're afraid of protestantism they're not afraid of radical free thought science galileo in that moment in the caribbean in that place which is why their energies end up going in ways that are counter to what we would expect the census census say that quickly the censor i can't even do it now censorism censorism censoriousness yes censorious (laughs) of the inquisition i I think that's fascinating because you mentioned the the index of banned books but if we we go back a little bit further sort of just pre-printing press how were they sort of focusing on what you know what was good what was bad when thought wasn't traveling particularly fast right they were still trying very very hard to control it How, how how did that work and then how did that change when you suddenly have this explosion of knowledge coming out of the printing press yeah, because if, if we're pre-1450, so we're in the manuscript period, producing a book can take six months for a single copy uh, and also costs as much as a house in terms of how much you're spending on the amount of leather, which is, you know, how many sheep is that book? A sheep is worth a lot of money. Uh, how many hours of employing a learned person is that book? That's a lot of time. So they really can not just imagine that they can track down every copy of a thing, which in fact they don't succeed at. And it's fun to talk about that. Uh, we can talk about the, the, the closest to a success that the church ever had in trying to destroy something, which is Sappho. Um, but they, they can, A, expect that they can kind of keep track of how quickly it's moving around. But also, B, fewer people are educated generally. And most of the theological conversations that are happening, which is where the Inquisition would, would be relevant, is happening in Latin, which gives you an even smaller slice of the population. And one of the interesting ideas that the Inquisition had early on and continued to have for centuries is that the more learned you are, the expectation was, the more you're already kind of immune to most heresies, especially obviously false ones like atheism, because anybody smart enough to learn Latin is also going to be smart enough to know that it's obvious that God exists. I mean, come on. Um, And so they have this expectation that a lot of material is safe for wealthy elites to read that wouldn't be safe for general publics to read. Because if you're not as educated, it's, it's easier for you to be misled. Exactly. So, for example, Lucretius's De Rerum Natura, this is an ancient Roman epic poem about Epicurean physics. It talks about atoms and vacuum and how nobody made the universe. The planets just formed out of accruing matter and there's no immortal soul and all sorts of things that feel very modern. And long ago, there were lots of species, but only the ones that suited their environment survived until the present day. And no new species come into existence anymore because the earth underwent menopause and no longer has giant placentas growing out of the ground, which is where species came from originally. It's a fascinating mix of stuff that feels very modern. It's stuff that feels very wacko. It's a fabulous epic poem. And it's recovered after being missing for a long time in 1417. Um, And it's full of very radical science stuff. Uh, And we have letters of the Inquisition talking about it as an example of the kind of book that shouldn't be banned. 
because everybody who reads it knows to read it as a fable is what the actual letter of, of uh, Ghislieri, who becomes one of the leaders of the version of the Inquisition that starts formally uh, censoring printed books. Uh, and so they allow Lucretius to circulate, but when it's translated into Italian, they ban that. Because that's going to be read by school kids, and that's going to be read by women, and that's going to be read by less educated people who are going to be in danger of being misled in their ideas uh, by not re recognizing the wrongness of the errors. So the Inquisition is, is in a weird way more chill when it's elites talking to other elites. Um, and when you look at the medieval Inquisition, yeah, they're concerned to, you know, burn some books here and there. Um, they're also concerned to keep books that they think are bad because you want to be able to, for, by, by reference, look at the heresies to make sure you're not accidentally inventing them again and doing them. Uh, and you want to practice arguing against them. So uh, the Inquisition itself assembles libraries of banned and forbidden theological books, which inquisitors are supposed to look at and reference when they're trying to decide whether a new book is also heresy. You have to cross compare them. So weirdly, they don't want to eradicate books in that period as much as they want to control preachers and they want to make sure that someone who's going into a church and speaking and telling people stuff that's going to circulate among the masses and be dangerous because it's going to mislead yeah i know the listeners can't see me making scare quotes but because it's going to mislead people that's what they're much more concerned about somebody who's popular somebody who has a following so infamously peter abelard is one of the medieval figures who gets uh, persecuted and, and prosecuted and then censored and some sentences out of his book are banned. But the real reason that they're worried about Peter Abelard is he's a super mega rock star, popular preacher, right? Who, when eventually he's kicked out of the monastery of Saint-Denis and goes and lives in a field in the middle of France, a hundred thousand people gather in the field to listen to him and study with him. This is in a Europe in which the largest city in Europe, Paris, has 250,000 people, right? You know, he's it's, he's it's, a fascinating character on his own. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's, it's Woodstock and is it an army? You know, you can see why the fears there are far beyond the fears of just the idea. Uh, it's the population, the ability to move people. So when we see the Inquisition get, getting fierce like that, it's usually when they think that somebody's ideas are not only dangerous, but influencing others uh, and especially influencing the less educated who they perceive as being less vulnerable to uh, sorry more vulnerable to less protected against uh, the obvious falseness of heresies that's fascinating it's, it's as soon as something becomes i don't want to say popular but is attracting people that want to learn about it that's when it becomes a problem. So as if it's in if it's in Latin, it's going back to school days and it's scaring me already, Latin. Um, it, it's okay because if you know Latin, you're smart enough. Right. And you've already had layers of education yeah. to get to the stage of having the Latin. So, but if it's in English or it's in French or it's in German, then it's a problem because they would say anyone could read it, even though literacy in itself is is not as high as perhaps they would... Yeah, but remember, there's an enormous amount of illiterate consumption of written material because there's a lot of reading aloud. Um, so there's a great scene that documents this perfectly in Shakespeare's Winter's Tale, where there's a ballad monger. So this is just 
around um, 1600. Mm -hmm. And he comes to a tiny village of illiterate farmers and he's selling printed pamphlets and they crowd around him asking him, what does this one say? What does this one say? This one is a song. What is the song about? And he tells them and they buy him out. They buy all of his stock. Because what they're going to do is take that to a literate person in their community and have them read it out to them uh, and often memorize it. And it might be the the parish priest who's usually literate. And one of the services a parish priest provides is that he'll read aloud the news or whatever it is. And if you're in a town, you know, the, the 1600s, 1700s equivalent of a sports bar is that there's a literate dude in the pub who reads aloud the latest stuff that the post horses have brought in from the larger city so that the not only purchasing, but especially hearing of printed material and other written material by illiterate populations was enormous uh, in these periods, which we think of as having low literacy. And the number that really hammers it home uh, in the years leading up to the American Revolution, so late 1700s, there were more copies of Thomas Paine's Common Sense printed in the colonies than there were citizens in the colonies. And they do not have a high literacy rate. What is that? It's that owning the object, having a literate friend read it out and kind of sounding along with it, etc., is a kind of political participation. It's having the object that it's the movement, right? It's your Elizabeth Warren t-shirt. It's being part of this thing that is exciting and dynamic, even if you're someone that we would consider illiterate. So semi-literacy and illiterate consumption of that kind of material happens through preaching, happens through reading aloud, happens through the circulation of sermons. And that's why somebody who is giving sermons is a whole lot scarier to the Inquisition than a scholar who's sitting down and writing out a 17-part proof that there's no such thing as God because everyone assumes and no one's going to listen to it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. As soon as you have an audience, you're putting yourself in the crosshairs of an inquisition somewhere or other censoring bodies because there's censorship happening that isn't the inquisition as well uh it's just a handy tool if you want to censor stuff the inquisition is one of the apparatuses at your disposal one of one of our weapons <laughs> yes you know this is fascinating because it, it it seems that you know as, as we were saying beforehand that it's it's moving very much from going after the people to the ideas and that sort of bleeds completely through into to today. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I know you mentioned comic books, which me, means we get to talk about the comic book code and, and, and things like that. But it, it is it is exactly the same thing that we're living with. It, we may not consider it an inquisition, but the policing of social media, the what is a platform versus a publisher, all of these sort of conversations we're having now are essentially the same ones that we've been having for hundreds and hundreds of years. And And two points related to that where knowing how the Inquisition worked helps us observe when these dangerous structures are recurring in ours. Uh, one of the characteristics shared there is, again, the Orwellian model of censorship is top-down, right? That there is this inner party and they have this scheme and they're inflicting it upon an innocent population. But a huge portion of censorship that's happened in the past and often when the Inquisition is powerful will also be because there is widespread popular support for the censorship, right? There's popular fear about this. And even when Ferdinand and Isabella in Spain are persecuting this imagined fifth column, partly it's their own fear, but also there's general anxiety in the culture so that if you have a big showy trial with an execution of somebody, it makes the population feel like, yes, the government is protecting us from the bad thing. There is grassroots support for censorship. And over and over in the history of censorship, you see these moments of there is grassroots support for this as well, which is one of the things that will often tip a small amount of censorship over into being a big amount of censorship, if you see what I mean. That you know, people at the top will want to do it, but people at the bottom will provide the impetus and the energy to make it happen. And democracy makes that even easier, right? So if we think about the comics craze in the 1950s, from the notes and correspondence of the politicians who were responsible for calling comic book publishers up before Congress and really pressuring them, a lot of the constituents and voters did, mm-hmm. and therefore that it was politically expedient to them to make a deal out of this because they would uh, support, even if it was an issue they didn't care about. So one of the things we always have to remember is that censorship is, when, when there's popular fear, then censorship turns into one of the things that people seeking power or seeking to maintain power will use to try to tap that popular fear to make themselves more powerful and entrench themselves in power. We need, if we want to not have things like the Inquisition again, to keep an eye on when we are afraid and make sure we're not accidentally giving the impetus to people in power to create apparatus to censor the thing we're scared of, which will then years later be reused to censor something very different. So whereas in the past, the the censorship would need the funding and the power from the top, now the power can come from harnessing a a scare from below. Exactly. That is, that is scary. <laughs> it is scary. It is very scary. And so, you know, while we're in the middle of saying, oh no, there's a lot of hate speech and a lot of dangerous terrorist groups, uh, especially white supremacist terrorist groups, organizing themselves via social media, you can see that easily leading to the, we, sh- we need a method to censor social media. We don't know what issue 15 years from now we will desperately need social media to protest against, right? 15 years from now, we might be in the middle of the civil rights battle over AIs or the civil rights battle over people wanting to strip rights away from vegetarians. Who knows what it's going to be? And if we created a bunch of censorship tools and didn't think carefully about them when we did, 
to battle what frightens us now, those can be reused later. So similarly, the people who founded the Inquisition to battle the Valdensian and Cathar uprisings didn't expect it to be used against Galileo uh, or against science at all. They thought about it very differently. In fact, Dominicans on the whole are super pro-science, as are Jesuits. Uh, They didn't anticipate the many different purposes to which this would be used later. And while they were pro-censoring a particular thing, they wouldn't necessarily have been abstractly pro-censorship. But once you make the tool, the tool is there. Uh, And once it's there, it's going to be reused. And and it's never, never going to be. It is never the case that it will never be reused. If the power to censor exists, it'll get tapped at some point. A A hammer doesn't always just have to hit a nail. Yeah. Which is a terrible way of putting it, but it's something my uncle once said to me that always sticks, some, <laughs> sticks yep. in my head. I, th- I think that's fascinating, spe- especially with the discourse that we're having at the moment. You sort of mentioned how we are looking at how social media is being used as it is. I just want to, because being a comic books fan, that whole period about the code, mm-hmm. um, you know, the subversive men like Marsden and and and, and his and um, his ladies, I suppose we can call them because. Wonder Woman is very much a collaborative effort. It's fascinating to see that that popular form of communication that was aimed towards aimed, it was consumed by the younger demographic. Mm. Same as social media savvy people today are much younger. We have this this very interesting correlation of the controlling of it. And right. you could very much see a a branding, a tick if you want, on, on certain accounts to say that something is approved. It, it's it's well, a fascinating. And in particular, there's always a desire to censor and control whatever medium is ha- being the most formative of the political opinions of the newly old enough to be political generation. Mm-hmm. And then when it's a different medium, you don't care about censoring the old one as much. So when I talk about the Comics Code Authority going in in 1954, people sometimes ask, how it end? How did it end? And they expect an exciting revolution. And instead, it was people stopped caring about censoring comic books. And comic book companies are like, hey, we're no longer benefiting from submitting our thing to these annoying censors who make it take longer. And we don't need to. And we can have slightly freer writing. And you know, yes, there are comic book writers who are like pushing and saying, hey, I want to publish a uncensored you know racy thing but it it really just sort of peters out because people don't care and there's a wonderful historian of theater uh stephen nicholson uh who's been working on censorship of london's theater because for ages london if you were going to stage a play in london it had to be reviewed by a censor who works for the lord mayor's office and we have all the records every play for ages and ages and the meticulous censorship that went into it which is a fascinating field for learning about you know censorship of burlesque and women's bodies censorship of political thought censorship of religious criticism and then television comes in and nobody cares about censoring theater anymore because the political ideas that are forming the new political generation are not coming from theater and so almost immediately as television takes over censorship of the theater like fine you want to be on stage with a penis i don't care you know it's for artsy elites anyway have fun Uh, and so the censorship dies out when there's a new medium that is now the medium of anxiety and and the haze code disappears from from film as well and yeah we care differently about it when we fear it for a different reason. So just as the inquisitions, plural, were used to police very different 
types of people and do very different types of things at different points. It all has to do with what you're afraid of locally. And going back briefly to the 16th and 17th century inquisitions, to give you a sense of how radically different they could be, uh, when Europe has its imperial phase, uh, Catholic imperial powers, France, Spain, and Portugal, therefore bring an inquisition with them uh, into their colonies, or sometimes several overlapping inquisitions. And you have interesting cases where you know, this inquisition will be in charge when the person being examined is a native indigenous person. This inquisition will be in charge when it's a member of the, the European ruling population. And then how you define those two populations gets really complicated. So we have fascinating cases in what is now Mexico, uh, new, then New Spain, where if you're mixed so that you have indigenous ancestry and European ancestry, you decide which one you want to be recognized <laughs> as legally. And, some, and there are different political advantages each way. And we have cases where brothers will choose to be recognized one as a Spaniard and the other as indigenous because they get different rights which are useful to the family in different ways. And then they're under two different inquisitions. But the neat thing you then look at, because this is all over the world, is what is their attitude toward, for example, indigenous languages? And that's going to be determined by local anxieties, local decisions, sometimes the one individual person who happens to be in charge of that local inquisition. So we have enormous efforts in Mexico, New Spain, to translate uh, Bible stories and psalms and psalters into indigenous languages, to learn how to do preaching in indigenous languages, to write sermons in indigenous languages. There's one really embarrassing moment when they're like trying to translate grace and and the word they use for it is something a lot closer to like passing liquid through your body. And, and then they're like, no, 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 we're <laughs> to retract the dictionary, retract the dictionaries. Uh, and they're working very, very hard on, you know, this outreach in indigenous languages. At exactly the same time, the Inquisition in Goa on the west coast of India, uh, their policy was, we want to wipe out the indigenous languages. We will burn any manuscript or document we find in indigenous languages, and we're just trying to eradicate them and make everybody do stuff in European languages. This is, they're both the Inquisition. They're not the same thing. They're not using the same types of oppression. They're not using the same tools. They're using different tools and they're having different ways of, if you want to eradicate an indigenous culture, do you do it by eradicating the language or by appropriating the language? Their approaches are totally different. And that's why plural inquisitions is a much better way to think about it. Not that any of them isn't terrible. They're all terrible, but they're terrible differently. And the better we understand the details and the variety the more we're capable of then looking out for when such things might recur in our own time. And again, the fear of nuance, you know, to brandish yeah. something is, oh, that's, that's the Spanish Inquisition coming back. You have a certain image of your head through popular fiction and, you know, all the things we talked about before, Python, Poe, and people like that. Whereas in reality, the nuance, which is where it gets really sexy and interesting, is everything that we live with today and that we discuss today has actually been used in various forms lots and lots of different times and you know I, I, I think I think of you know you talk about indigenous things being from Canada thinking of how in Canada the the First Nations were had children taken away and sent to schools to be re-educated whereas in mm -hmm. the States they just kind of killed everybody you know di different forms of education versus eradication and you, you can sort of see those parallels against 
native folks throughout the world when idealized western thought arrived right and you can also learn things about okay you know the cultures of these places now that they're no longer colonies are doing their best to regenerate what different damage was done by the one method versus the other method Mm -hmm. and resources to try to help uh, rebuild a culture and preserve the relics of that culture can be can be allocated more wisely if you recognize that the situation in Goa where manuscripts were destroyed requires this type of study to try to reconstruct material, the situation in New Spain slash Mexico requires a different approach because the damage was done in a different way. That the damage methods, you know, you don't medically treat somebody for a sword stab the same way you do for a mace skull crush you you treat those differently because the injuries inflicted are different even if the motive is the same yeah that, that's that's a brilliant way of, of, of thinking about it because i'm just trying to think of a phrase without being overly simpl- sim- simplistic because it's you can't be simplistic with this is, is what we're coming about it's, mm-hmm. it's so nuanced and yet it's been surprising how modern it actually is but it's the fact that we're just reusing the same tools again right. and again which is which which is just mind-blowingly fascinating to me like i said a minute ago you have this idea and you know the, the original questions i sent you were very much the spanish inquisition capital letters flashing but it's not it's the subtleties it's it's the the various forms of it that just never never really change if a tool works you keep using it right and in in many ways there's always going to be a tool that can be used to censor because most of the time when people try to censor, they reuse the apparatus that's already there. They don't make a new thing, right? So when in Chicago in the, I forget if it's the 70s, you know, there was a show where they supported an artist that did stuff that was very critical of the government and the city really wanted to crack down on the Art Institute. The city did so by stripping its budget, right? And saying, okay, well, your budget from the city next year instead of thousands of dollars is $1. Take that. You know, we're not allowed to, to censor the thing. This is actually a case where the ACLU came in, defended the Art Institute and protected the art. So the art was safe because First mm-hmm. Amendment, the budget, you can still go after. There's nothing the First Amendment can do to prevent you from retaliating against something by stripping its budget away. Right. So there's always going to be some tool that people can pervert. The post office is a classic one. You, you want to censor mm-hmm. stuff, use the post office. Right. And we saw this being happening in the U.S. this year with interfering with mail in voting. But, uh, you know, in New Zealand is one of my favorite worlds to study this in we have great records for the censors of New Zealand, which, by the way, state censor of New Zealand has a Twitter account super fun you got to follow him on twitter there's also a blog it's super modern it's got like clip art or rather stock photos of of teenagers with laptops like presumably being censored and looking happy it's such a great and they blog about the stuff that they're censoring and they they have deadpool like quip uh, and make comments about what he would say if he wasn't being censored and they have the best mascot of anything ever the the sad bunny of having accidentally watched inappropriate age inappropriate immaterial and being traumatized the the sad traumatized age inappropriate material bunny of the new zealand censor's office it's fantastic but if you go way back to the beginning of the 20th century one of the neat censorship crises that hits is talkies Mm. this hits everywhere at the same time because the technology comes in as soon as there are talkies people can say bad words 
in movies. Oh, no. Now we have to censor movies in a much more radical way. People will say bad words in them. Uh, and so you see every power scrambling to like make a system to make sure movies don't have bad words in them. And what New Zealand is like, oh, well, we use the post office. Uh, the post office is already checking all the parcels that come in. And so we'll say, okay, we'll also look for porn and also look for movies and watch them. And if they don't, if they have bad words in them, you can take that and, and lock it away and not let it be shown because the post office just already exists. It's a super easy tool to use for censorship. So we're never going to be in a situation where there isn't an apparatus that can be used to censor. So if we want to prevent censorship, the method isn't preventing the creation of censoring bodies. The method is studying what is the impulse that leads people to censor? How can we watch for that impulse? How can we say, okay, this sense, this society is having a crisis. People are really scared. This is the kind of moment in which a flare-up of censorship is likely let's watch out for the reuse of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that, that learning what impulses it is that make censorship, in, uh, censorship movements become strong is much more valuable place for our vigilance to focus than on apparatus, because no matter what apparatus you prevent from being created, they're going to reuse apparatus that's there on the side which is happening right now in surveillance technologies where you know the government isn't allowed to develop stuff to spy on us but they sure are allowed to partner with amazon to make surveillance equipment that amazon claims is really just about your home security but then they sell the information to the government and in return the government gives them tax rebates and promises not to you know pick on their stuff and and again it's a workaround come to england Visit London is the most cameraed city in in the world. There's something silly like that. That it's uh, you. I think they're saying that you're never once you enter the M25, you're never not on a camera somewhere. Partnerships between government and for-profit organizations is also one of the classic things that helps censorship thrive. So if we look at England, uh, the beginning of English book censorship which relates to the beginning of Catholic book censorship. So printing comes in 1450. Uh, By the 1480s, people are talking about, you know, how do we censor this? Rome is starting to say, okay, well, we're going to pass a policy that before you're allowed, and this is very early 1500s, before you're allowed to print anything, you have to get permission. You have to get permission before the book can be printed. You have to show it to an authority approved by the church who has to say, yes, this this can be printed. And it can be the local bishop or it can be a professional inquisitor or they can hire people to do it. This is how it eventually becomes France being full of freshly graduated lit majors doing this, right? Because they didn't anticipate how many books there would be. Uh, And the number of books just keeps multiplying exponentially like the penny on a chessboard where there's two and four and eight and then you have a trillion dollars. You know, that that's what happens with books, which they don't realize when they say, yes, every single book will be read by an inquisitor before it comes out. No, Um, but they start doing this and immediately printers are like, oh, you got to get official permission to print a book. Can I have a monopoly? on printing the book so i'm the only one who can have it and the inquisitors is like sure and the book publishers are like great the first version of copyright mm-hmm. we finally have a way to prevent other people from printing the book we just printed and cutting our sales in half so even as authors are all being examined and censored printers are making more money from this and uh when there are then proposals in england to do a system like this which is the very early 1600s 
the arguments made in favor of it to the public are, oh no, terrible Catholics are going to publish terrible Catholic propaganda. We have to crack down on them. It's going to be scary and bad. But the people who are gunning for it, the, the people lobbying for this, are the Print Stationers Guild of London, who are going to be the people in charge of granting the licenses, who therefore can collect fees for it and give themselves licenses, but deny licenses to other people, and in all sorts of ways, use this as a for-profit system, in exactly the way that the Hollywood-controlled movie ratings system in the U.S. works, where they give unfavorable ratings to indie rivals and better ratings to their own stuff, so that there's a deep old pattern of the entanglement of for-profit groups realizing that helping the government set up a censorious system will also make them money, and therefore using their strength and influence to encourage and lobby for the creation of uh, or re-implementation of or transformation of a censorious system. I think one of my original questions when when did the Inquisitions end? And the real the reality is they didn't, they just evolved. Yes. So in a technical sense, the Inquisition still in some senses exists in the, you know, the offices exist, but the index of banned books, which is in certain ways one of the most important practices of the Inquisition, this starts mid-1500s and the idea is to keep a list of the books that have been banned so that if you're in a town that it takes a while to get to and a printer asks, am I allowed to print this, you can look it up and say, Thomas Hobbes, no, you are not allowed to print. This is this is banned. And you look it up in the thing and it's there and you're not allowed to, to print it. Um, and they rapidly discover that they can't keep up with this at all. And so the, the indexes list individual authors and sometimes it'll list, you know, all works by Thomas Hobbes, no. Uh, but other people will be like, Conrad Gesner, you can have this one and this one and this one, which are an encyclopedia, but you can't have this one, which is a theological digest, you know, or, uh, and they even get more fine grain of you can have this one, but you have to go to page 72, paragraph eight, and cross out the third sentence. And I'll come back to that in a second, because that's one of the most fascinating sets of practices. But they'll have this guide, but it'll also have a, you know, if you're dealing with new books that haven't come out yet, uh, or somebody brings you a book that you haven't heard of and isn't in this list, here's how you handle it. Uh, and some of that'll be, we know Spain is way ahead of us in terms of their Inquisition being super more funded than our Inquisition. So if people come with you, come to you with a list saying something is banned in Spain, just like pretend we banned it too. It'd be like, oh yes, of course I know what that book is. And we totally also banned it because Rome is utterly outstripped by the Spanish Inquisition in the um, 1500s and 1600s. But it'll also have guides like, you know, any book dedicated to this one Protestant German ruler is banned because people are going to dedicate stuff to him because he likes Protestantism. And so the stuff is probably going to be by Protestants we haven't heard of yet. Or any letters exchanged to and from this list of people, you know, that we know are Protestants, mm -hmm. you can't publish even if they're new letters that haven't come out yet. Or my favorite, any book printed on a printing press that has printed the works of Martin Luther. Oh, because that would be contaminated. <laughs> both because it's contaminated and because that printing press is likely to print other protestants right it's mm, likely yes. to print you know the the just like today science fiction presses print science fiction romance presses print romance protestant presses print the kind of stuff that people who would buy luther would buy 
And so it's likely to therefore also have content that Rome wants to be censored. So it's a contamination thing, but it's also a marketing thing. Uh, that that's a press whose market are the kind of people who want the stuff we don't like, therefore pre-ban all the stuff that that press might print in future. The Index of Banned Books begins, as I said, around 1520, continues to be produced and updated into the 20th century. And here, I know it's unfair on the listeners, you'll probably want to cut this part. Here is one of the most recent editions. Uh, It kept being printed up into the 1940s. Uh, And in this book, you can look up you know, different, different titles and individual people and whether you're allowed to read them or not. And the rule is, and this was always the rule, if you want to read it, you can request permission. You could go to the Inquisition and say, I want to read this, here's why. And they could give you a note. It's like getting a note from your parents to go to the dangerous field trip, right? You get a note from an inquisitor or a bishop saying, yes, you're allowed to read the thing. And in the original form, this often was, dear Inquisition, I'm a doctor, and you've banned Pliny the Elder because there's a bit where he says there's no afterlife. But I just want to read his discussions of chemistry and epilepsy, and I promise I believe there's an afterlife. So can I please have permission to read Pliny? And then you'll get your license, and you pay them for this process. And you get your license, and it's a three-year license, and and afterward you apply for a renewal. Uh, Hannah Marcus, who's a historian of science at Harvard, is the one who works on these licenses a lot. And then you might come back in three years and be like, I want Pliny again. Can I also have these other books? Because I was good with the Pliny. And then they'll be like, okay, you can have these other books. And and pretty soon the doctors are like, I need Pliny. And also the Decameron. And also these, you know, forbidden romance satires. And the Inquisition's like, fine. Because coming back to that Latin issue, you're a doctor. You're an educated person. You're in the elite. They trust you and they allow you to have it Uh, because a lot of the activities, not only of the Inquisition, but of a lot of censoring bodies aren't focused on trying to destroy a particular thing, but to police who has it, right? Like just as we police, can kids have this, which has nudity? Can kids see this movie, which has profanity in it? Uh, The censorship is not trying to say there shall be no films with bad language. It's there shall be films with bad language only for the people we think should have them, which is often the people in the greater position of power. Um, So a lot of the activities of the Inquisition are not destroy the book. It's restrict the book so that only those people we trust, only our in-group has access to the book and the out-group doesn't have access to the book. And so if you're a scholar and you want to get a hold of a book that's been banned, if you're from the middle of nowhere or out of favor, you're unlikely to get permission. But if you're the librarian of the Duke and you're writing on you know, the Duke stationery uh, or the equivalent thereof, right? the Inquisition is going to be too nervous to say no because they need the Duke to give them troops and stuff in order to persecute people, which they can't do without the support of local government. So there were all these islands of elite access where if you're friends with the ruling power, yeah, of course you can have the thing. It's only when you're out of power that you can't, which is exactly how it worked in Soviet Russia. And in fact, is how it works in, in China right now, right? Where inner party members have uncensored internet access and nobody worries about it, but ordinary citizens are denied this access. And similarly, when we look at the notes of censors and 
Russia, you know, they're reading all of these elite Western books that they're meanwhile purging from libraries, but keeping for themselves. It's about this trusted elite gets it, but the masses don't get it. So then talking about where the Inquisition ends, you know, the most recent version of the index is printed in the 40s, and it technically has force of law for Catholics uh, into the 1960s. Uh, so that even up to the 1960s, if you're Catholic and you're going to college, and as at my university would often be true, Machiavelli or Thomas Hobbes is on your syllabus, technically you have to go to the bishop and get a permission slip to do your homework. And people did, and these are in the archives of universities and are around. Um, but in the late 60s, there was a lot of reform. Uh, in the Catholic Church, and this switched over to, instead of being a list of banned authors, being a list of disrecommended material. Here's a list of stuff that the church considers to not necessarily be healthy viewing or healthy reading for Catholics, and nobody is going to say that you get persecuted for doing it or prosecuted for doing it, but we'll maintain this list, and you might want to use it to structure your reading and viewing practices, and that list still exists. I remember a, a few people being startled to notice this when the Avatar movie was put on it, and people were like, what? The Inquisition just banned the Avatar movie? It's like, well, kind of. They the church just officially unrecommended, disrecommended the Avatar movie for, uh, for, for pious Catholics as a, as a consumption thing because of its animist uh, geospiritual content. Uh, so it changed form. <laughs> so the Inquisition changed form as the Catholic Church changed form, but it was always chameleonic over time. And the Inquisition, if you jump 100 years, is always totally different from the Inquisition of a different period. It's an extremely flexible, reused, repurposed, transformed thing. Uh, And so if right now it's at the lowest historical ebb of its force, of its toothfulness, of its ability to to hurt, uh, it still exists as a a tracker of media. But the earlier versions, when we have these wonderfully maintained lists of banned books, are, are really fascinating to look at, especially in their weird... Again, what we would call blind spots if we were time traveling and being like, hey, Inquisition, you know, the one that's going to cause the, the revolution is actually this one. Uh, some of them, which I love, your name gets to be in all caps if you're an art heretic. You know, I'm like, ooh, who's an art heretic? And so I'm flipping through, like, looking for my favorite people to be an art heretic. And like, surely Machiavelli is, nope. They're all obscure or occasionally famous Protestant preachers all of them like calvin and zwingli are the only two you've even heard of and everybody else who gets arch heretic status is like some utterly forgotten preacher from uh this mob that they were scared of right then and that 10 years later no one could care about at all but they were focused on the problem of the time because it was always perceived by them as an emergency response never proactive always reactive in the way they understand themselves so the more things change, really, the more they stay the same, don't they? Yeah, we're very used to these problems of crisis politics, where people use crises or let things that they know are going to be bad become bad so that they could use it as a crisis to then uh, launch a political campaign around it or whatever. That, that's a very old method and it works. This has been utterly fascinating. Thank you so much, Ada. If people want to learn more, where can they go? You, you've been mentioning your website. What is it? 
So you can go to adapalmer.com, which links to everything. But my blog is exurbe.com, E-X-U-R-B-E.com, where I blog about philosophy, history. I've got a recent post about the Black Death and looking at the question. People keep asking, if the Black Death caused an economic boom in the Renaissance, will COVID cause an economic boom in the Golden Age? And my extremely long blog post answer to that question is, the question itself is a problem and here's why. (laughs) And the very short takeaway is the Black Death didn't have a homogenous effect on the economy. It made the economy boom or bust differently for different industries and in different regions based on policy. Uh, And so what the economic impact of Black Death teaches us for COVID is policy is everything. And the individual policies implemented at different places are going to be what determines whether the growth, whether afterward we get growth or sinking. I also blog about gelato and where to find it. So We're all having of that you is back for X- gelato. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to on xurbe.com. Uh, I also have a Patreon, which is linked from it, I think. Uh, and I'm also soon starting up a podcast with a friend of mine who's a science fiction novelist as well, Joe Walton, and the two of us are voracious readers of history as well. So this is science fiction writers talking about craft of writing and using history for writing and using science for writing. Uh, and it should be a lot of fun. That sounds um, and the podcast is probably just going to be called XRB, like the blog, but it doesn't actually have a name yet. We just recorded our first session last week. It's a slippery slope. Welcome to the podcast world. <laughs> <laughs> and I should mention the novels, uh, Terra Ignota is my first series. The first volume is Two Like the Lightning. It takes place in the 25th century in a future of flying cars, which enable borderless nations because you can get anywhere on earth to anywhere else on earth in about two hours. So suddenly you can, that's a reasonable commute and you can live in the Bahamas and work in London and your spouse can live in the Bahamas and have a lunch meeting in Tokyo and and an office in Antarctica. And this is a perfectly reasonable day commute. And as soon as that happens, nationhood can no longer rely on geography because everybody is mixing with everybody else. And so it transitions into borderless nations and then looks at what citizenship and conflict would look like in a world that does have countries, but doesn't have borders. And it's written in the style of an 18th century philosophical novel like Candide. And it's really weird and hard to describe, strange book, uh, but some people really like it. And my next novel is going to be about Vikings. Isn't that much easier to say? It's about Vikings. I, I just love well, that you can just say what it's about instead of being like, but, blind, but blah, then, blah, 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 blah. But then we can say what type of Vikings, and then we will go off on a whole different tangent. Dead Vikings. Ooh, even better. Super. Yes. Ada, thank you so much. We shall put your book on the bookshop as well so people can find it as well. Thank you so much. We'd like to thank Ada Palmer for joining us today on History Hack. And of course, you can find her book on our bookshop, which you can find at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, where we have a selection of books by all our recent guests. And everyone you purchase not only supports them, but also supports the podcast. So we thank you very much for your continued support. And until the next time, here's the Patreon bit. In 2020, when the boss ladies Alex and Alina started History Hack, the world was very strange. And unfortunately, it looks like 2021 is going to be equally strange. We would love it if you're able to support the podcast in any way. It will allow us to keep up the regularity of the pods and also the great guests that we've been able to bring you over the last year. We exist on Patreon as History Hack and also on Podbean, our podcast host's own platform called Patreon. 
The reward tiers are being updated at the moment, so there's going to be some fantastic options for you to choose from. So if you're able to support us, that would be fantastic. So we thank you very much, and until the next time, bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.